Thank you guys so much. Hey, if you are elementary school aged, you can head downstairs for some sprouts. You guys are going to have fun down there this morning. So, hey, I just want to, every week I'm just reminded of how thankful I am for you guys and gals that, that lead worship and that you're real human beings that God has entrusted great gifts with and you use them and you have a lot of fun and uh, make it a lot of fun for us too. And I'm, I'm just really thankful that uh, we can sing that truthfulness of these songs. And a lot of times they kind of get to the core of our experience and what we're, what we're sometimes walking through. And so uh, glad that we can do that together as a church family. So um, yeah. All right. I am not a native Utonian. Utahn, Utonian, what's the, what's the, Utahn, Utahn, there you go. By the way, I, I've lived in, in Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Utah, and I think Utah has even Oklahoma beat for the craziest names, like Hurricane, it's Hurricane, right? Like, I, I'm from Nebraska, I just, you know, don't make me think that hard, so there you go, so just kidding. Hey, but there are so many things that I love about Utah, like there are so many things, and one of the things that I love specifically about this valley is Utah Lake. It's beautiful. It's just incredible. There's nothing quite like a sunrise seeing the rays of the of the rising sun, uh, you know, coming across the calm still Utah Lake, the reflection of Mount Tempanogas, you know, just year round. It's just it's just beautiful then at sunset you kind of it's just it's just great, right? Like Utah Lake is so beautiful in so many ways. And, and what's crazy is that you can kind of see a picture of it up there um, in case you can't look out the window. That's a look of it, too. So, you know, um, but it's so it's kind of it's interesting because if you know the history of Utah Lake, it's, it's pretty fascinating. Before before settlers came into the valley, it was actually said that it was crystal clear. Like you could see all the way through it, and and it was habitat to to uh, to a couple different variety of fish that were just abundant, and the 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 indigenous people lived off the fish that they that they harvested from that. Um, it was a safe haven for all sorts of wildlife. You see, Utah Lake is fed from the east from natural springs and snow runoff, right, from the different rivers and creeks and springs, and it, and it flows in. And, uh, and so it kind of fills it up. And then from the west side and kind of the north side, there's all these hot springs, right? And so it kind of creates this interesting ecosystem. Uh, and it's, it's complex and beautiful and everything like that, right? And then um, when it fills up, it flows north through the Jordan River up into the Great Salt Lake. And so it's constantly flowing, right? And it stays clear that way. And it just, it's it, in its native uh, natural setting, it's a very healthy ecosystem. But if you spent any time in Utah, specifically if you've ever gone down to Utah Lake, you know some things have changed over the last 150 years, right? It's changed dramatically. In the 1850s, settlers actually started uh, net fishing and over-harvesting because they had to feed the burgeoning population here, right? And so they overfished. They wiped out the native uh, fish species. There was two different types of sucker fishes, and then they put carp in there. Well, carp is very robust and it eats everything. And so it ate the habitat, it ate the, the natural fish. It just took over Utah Lake. It's estimated that 90% of the biomass of Utah Lake is carp. It's just not a, not, a, not a native species, it's an invasive species. And so the, the, the very uh, wildlife that lived in it was taken over. 
as the valley developed, uh, factories on the east side were, were, were coming up. And what do they do with the industrial waste? Well, there's that gigantic toilet bowl over there called Utah Lake. Let's just pipe it right into there. And so you had steel mills. You had all sorts of things pumping industrial waste in from the east. Um, on the west side and the north side, it used to all be pasture. So what do you do when you when you when your cows die? Well, you just drag it into the lake and let the let the carp, you know, eat it, you know, whatever. Let's just put put all the natural waste into there and unnatural waste too. Up until 1967, Provo City pumped raw sewage into the lake. So you literally, instead of developing water treatment facilities, waste treatment facilities, um, they put some I, brown trout. I don't know if that's what they would be in there, but uh, um, sorry, I'm an old youth pastor. Those jokes never quite leave my system. There you go. But 1967, raw sewage was being pumped directly from hundreds of thousands of people. We're being pumped right into this seven mile wide, 21 mile, about nine feet deep area. Have you guys ever been out on Utah Lake? I was out there a few years ago with, with Drew's cousin Lane and he had a boat and we were out there and he was pulling me and, and I, 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 I fell off the water skis and he goes, hey, see if you can touch the bottom. I was like, no, he goes, do it, you wimp. And I literally put my feet down and just go down into the bottom. Like, ah, you can't. And guys, I was way out in the middle of the lake too. That was what's crazy. It was just so gross. Now, what's interesting is that the fresh water from the streams and rivers that were coming out of in, in the snow runoff and everything like that, that was starting to be diverted for agricultural and irrigation and drinking water. And so less and less of the water that was meant to fill up Utah Lake was getting to Utah Lake. And so it was, you know, on drought years, it would get lower and lower and lower. Well, what happens is that the little water that comes in doesn't go out. And so it just stagnates. It just stays. Now, remember the, the organic material that's been pumped into Utah Lake. You guys remember the algae blooms? Like there, there was a, a family that was just out there playing with their dog and, you know, hey, dog, go play in the water. The dog died a couple days after going into Utah Lake. Sorry, Jason ruins everything. Like, like I love Utah Lake, but don't go play in it with your kids, right? What, what's so sad is that what was left was a closed off stagnant cesspool, algae clogged cesspool. It was meant as a source of life and life-giving resources, right? But instead, it got closed off. Now, if you think I'm being overly dramatic and, and you know, if, if this is an inconvenient truth, you know, just go take your kid down and I dare you, go let your kid play in it, you know? It's, 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 it's disgusting. It's really sad at what's happened to it. Now, I've heard the saying before that um, stagnant water is dying water. Stagnant water is dying water. For life to flourish, fresh water needs to flow. The same, I think, can be said of churches, of our faith, of our relationship with Jesus. A stagnant church is a dying church. A stagnant follower of Jesus is a dying follower of Jesus, because you're not really following Jesus, right? And once again, this brings us to the last church in Revelation, the church of Laodicea the lukewarm church. Okay, here's a little bit of history on the, the church, and not, not the church, but Laodicea itself, right? It's in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, kind of the, the western side. Um, and uh, Laodicea was known for three prominent things. First of all, it was known for 
medicine and healing. All right. Medicine and healing. Um, what they had was two things. They, one, they produced this really expensive salve that was said to have cured all sorts of eye diseases and eye illnesses. In fact, some people even tried to use it to cure blindness, right? Like you have all this eye stuff. And so they produced this really expensive and fancy uh, eye salve that that's supposed to help. Also, um, uh, Laodicea is located um, between Heropolis and Colossae. Now, Heropolis was to the north, about six miles to the north, and Heropolis had these um, these hot springs. It's actually these world-famous hot springs. I mean, they just sprawl, and it's these sulfurous hot springs that come out, and, and in that day, they believed that, that the hot springs had healing medicinal powers, and if you ever have talked with Carmen, who worked at Pagosa Springs in Colorado, she could tell you some stories of people that tried to come and get healings, like even one lady that brought in a dead cat. And it's like, have you not seen Pet Cemetery? This will not end well for you, right? <laughs> like, just a little further, Gage, you know, sorry, a little pop culture history for you there. But like, people would come from all over the place to try to find healing. And so, so what happened was that um, they, they had the, these, these hot springs to the north, and then to the south and east was Colossae, about 10 miles away. They had these cold freshwater springs that were refreshing and life-giving, and, and they were brought relief and life to dry Laodicea, okay? So the first thing is, is health, right? The second thing is wealth. It was the richest city in Asia Minor. They were so rich, in fact, they were the center of baking of their day. Um, we talked about earthquakes. A lot of these churches in this region have been destroyed over and over. Sorry, the cities in this region have been destroyed by earthquakes. And, and, and time after time, Laodicea was destroyed by earthquakes. And, and the government would say, hey, we'll give you some government assistance. We'll help rebuild your city. And they're like, no, 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 no. We're not going to take your handouts. We can do it on our own because we're wealthier than you. And so they would take the money and they were self-dependent. They were independent, right? So health and wealth. Sorry, uh, yeah, health and wealth. And then the third thing is that they were renowned for their clothing manufacturing. They produced black cloth, which was kind of a sign of prosperity and significance. And, and it was just fancy clothing, right? And so you have health, wealth, and prosperity. What more would you want to be known for, right? So that is the setting in which this church, the Laodicean church, the lukewarm church is in, all right? And we've seen... It's kind of like a, 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 a fore, forewarning here is that a lot of times churches take on the character of their communities. Instead of being an influence in the community, they absorb the culture of their community and, not, and sometimes not in a very good way. So this morning we're going to read um, the last part of chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. You can read it in your Bible, on your phone, on your paper, up there, wherever you like. All right, verse 14. Write this letter to the church of the angel Oh, sorry, the angel of the church of Laodicea. This is the message, message from the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. Okay, a couple things just in this first verse. Number one, amen. Why would he start with amen? He's describing Jesus as the amen. Amen literally means so it is, so, it, so be it. May it be so, right? After someone would pray or read the scripture or teach from the scripture, people would say, amen, right? We can do that a little bit. Like, it's okay. You can, you can say amen. I'm okay with that. But literally, when people say amen, it means 
I want it to be so in my life. Let it be so in our lives. Let it be so, let that be the reality. And so Jesus is, is named the great amen. They were agreeing to, and they were surrendering to Jesus as the ultimate authority. The next one, faithful. Faithful literally means trustworthy. They can be relied upon. In Revelations chapter one, uh, verse five, Jesus is called the faithful witness um, of, of what's real and true. And that gets us to the truth, right? True is truth. It's real. It's genuine, sincere. Uh, it's the same thing that we looked at last week in Revelation chapter three, verse seven, is Jesus is truth. If we want to pursue truth, when we say, I want to speak my truth, we better speaking of Jesus. Because Jesus is what's true. Sometimes I think something is true, but I might be wrong. I need to make sure that my truth aligns with the truth of who Jesus is. And then this whole thing where he says he's the beginning of God's new creation. That word beginning literally means the origin, the source from which everything else flows. The cause, the first, the foundational principle by which everything else is governed. Jesus is the foundational cornerstone of everything everything that's been created. He didn't come along after creation. Everything in creation was built upon him. Now, what's interesting is if you look through the other six six churches and then this one, every time, every letter to every church starts off with who is Jesus? As I'm telling you, that is the most important question that we can ask and have answered in our lives is who is Jesus? Because who Jesus is makes all the difference in the world. If he is the sovereign Lord over all, that's what we want to build on. We don't want to build on anything else other than a Jesus who is sovereign and Lord over all. Verse 15, I know all the things you do. And this is right where we're used to getting a little bit of praise. And then he kind of comes in as there's no praise for Laodicea. There's no, hey, boy, a girl, way to go. There's none of it. He goes right in here. He goes, I know all the things you do, the deeds, right? The fruit of your life. I know what your life is producing. And he says, you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. But since you're Luke, like, since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, what's interesting is that what were we just talking about, Laodicea? You have hot water, you have cold water. Kind of an interesting thing. Now, some people interpret this saying that Jesus says, I wish you were either hot on fire for me or cold and opposed against me. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. If you look at what was actually happening in Laodicea, he means, I wish you were either hot or cold. Don't be lukewarm. I don't, I don't want you to be against me. I want you to be for me or for me, not against me. What do I mean by that? Well, the problem is, is that that hot uh, sulfur spring water that was piped six miles What happens over six miles of piping to hot springs water? It cools down. What happens to hot sulfur water when it gets cooled down? It becomes stinky sulfur water, like like lukewarm sulfur water. They actually had ingenious things of of how to kind of service the pipes, how to get the, the, the mineral buildup out of there because it was just so disgusting. It was kind of cool down. It would stagnate. It would build up. By the time it came out of the pipe six miles, six miles later, it was kind of like, oh, you know, it's just gross, eggy smelling water. Now, it, the purpose of the hot springs water was healing. It was supposed to heal them. It was supposed to, people would bathe in it. They would drink it. They, they put it into their medicines. They thought that it was going to heal them, but it had lost its heat. 
its vigor, its livelihood. That was its identity, its purpose, its value, but it was lost. And now it's just stinky, gross water. The cold water that was piped over from, from Colossae was piped 10 miles. What happens to cold water after it's been piped for 10 miles? Whole, like it's just gross, lukewarm water. Again, the, 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 the identity, the value, the purpose of cold, refreshing water is to be life-giving. And it had lost its identity along the way. Now, what's really interesting is, is that Laodicea, actually, people that weren't used to living there, um, you ever been up to Jackson Hole? It's, it's a little bit of a sensory overload when you get there because it's kind of like, it smells like eggs up here, right? Well, people that weren't from Laodicea, they would come and they would want to get this drink, either the cold, refreshing water or the hot healing water, and they would get it and they would drink it. And after one drink, they would vomit. And it was just kind of a known thing that was happening is, oh, you're going to go to Laodicea. Don't drink the water. Kind of like when we went on our honeymoon to Cancun, everybody's like, don't drink water. Don't drink water there. And so we drink bottled water the whole time. Well, brilliant me on our flight back, I had a Coke with ice cubes in it. By the time we landed back in Houston, I was like, babe, here's the keys to my car. I got to go to the bathroom, right? Like it was not good. I was sick as a dog. If you've ever been sick from drinking Gross water, which Michael, I'm not going to call you out, but you feeling better? Is it, is it better? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's what's that 24 hours? There you go. Take it from a yell barfer. You don't want to drink bad water. It's not pleasant for me or for anybody around me, right? But that's what Laodicea was known for. It was, was they would drink this, this tepid water and then they would throw up. Now, church, as Jesus is saying, the church in Laodicea was like the disgusting water that they had piped in. They weren't going to the sorts of, I mean, it was just, it was a diluted, perverted, changed, altered version of what it was meant to be. They'd lost their identity. They'd lost their purpose. They'd lost their value. And when Jesus says, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to drink you. I'm going to spit you. I'm going to vomit you. That word spit you out literally means to vomit from the stomach. It's not just... It's, you know, it's, he's disgusted by it. This is strong language. But then Jesus explains the problem even more in verse 17. He says, you say, I'm rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you're actually wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now, Jesus systematically dismantles what they're known for. Do you guys notice that? Wretched and miserable means that they aren't independent. They aren't self-sufficient. They aren't self-made. When he says they're poor, you say you're you're rich, but you're actually poor. You say you can see, but you're actually blind. Your, your Your warm springs and your eye salve isn't saving you. You have this fancy clothing that you're renowned for, but but you're actually naked and you're shameful. In their own estimation, they're doing totally fine. They're healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. But Jesus says, you have no connection to me. You're operating on your own. Now, what's crazy is that in this context, it's poor isn't just poor. Poor means that literally you are destitute. You are stuck on the street begging. It's not just, boy, the end of the month came early this month. It's, I don't know how we're going to get lunch today. It's not, I don't know how we're going to, ha- we're going to have to find more ways. No, in that culture, if you ran out of money, you went on the street and you begged. 
if you were um, if you were uh, blind, you wouldn't have somebody that's just, oh, this is my disabled friend, you know, blah, 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 blah. We're going to make way. No, you were stuck on the street begging. If you didn't have clothing, it wasn't just, well, I'm going to go run to the store. Well, remember, you're already on the street begging and you're blind and now you're naked too. It's, there's shame involved in that. Like it's, it's gut-wrenching. Jesus wants them to get the, the weight of what he's talking about. You think you're all that and more but you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. He wants them to see that their delusions of self-grandeur and self-sufficiency was about to cost them their eternity because they were turning their backs on him. Again, remember what stagnant water is dying water. Stagnant people are dying people. He says, if you're not being poured into by me, then you are dying. Now, here's the cool thing. That sounds pretty hopeless and pretty abysmal, right? But Jesus doesn't leave them without hope. In fact, he draws, he begs them to come to him with his hope. And and he shows them the things that they can change. Verse 18, so I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you'll be rich. Not rich by the worldly standards, but rich in eternal wealth. And also buy white garments from me, so that you will be not ashamed by your nakedness. Now, again, we talked earlier in Revelation about how the white robes, the white, the white cloth meant uh, purity and innocence and acceptance and, and like you were covered by grace, right? Like he's washed away our sins and in him we have forgiveness and our, our purity is restored. And then he says, an ointment for your eyes so that you'll be able to see. Now, again, Jesus likes to talk a lot about sight, right? When he was living on the earth, he talked a lot with the Pharisees about You think you see, but you're actually blind. What you're not seeing is the reality of eternity. All you see is the law and religion and your practices and your rituals and your your buildings and everything like that. That's all you see, but you're missing God along the way. And he says, "In, in Jesus, you're going to receive true eternal sight. Verse 19, I correct and discipline everyone I love. You can either underline that or cross that out. It's up to you. As a parent, because I love my kids, I I, I discipline them. Think about when we were kids. I know we have young people and we have older people here. I know we might not have enjoyed the discipline along the time, all the all the time. And maybe sometimes our parents didn't do it correctly. And sometimes as parents, we don't always do it correctly. But sometimes the most loving thing that we can do is to help our kids grow up without regret, without harm, without pain, without, without scars, right? Like we're, we're just going to make mistakes and it's everything like that. But the, the deal with that discipline and correction, the, the language behind that literally means to train, to instruct, to raise up healthy kids. And so Jesus loves us. And so when we mess up, he's going to say, hey, don't do that. And here's why. And here's a better way. It's not just waiting for us to screw up. It's being present with us when we screw up. It's loving us in the middle of that chaos. I wish I'd have understood that better when I was a kid. And, and I'll be honest, even as a dad, I wish I understood that better. That's the standard to which I want to, to conduct myself. I mess up. I screw up. 
but I want to be disciplined by my loving dad, heavenly dad, just like I want to do that for my kids. And I want them to experience that with him as well. So he says, I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent. That word diligent literally means burn with zeal, like a hot boiling, like excitement as you pursue after this. He says, um, he says, be diligent, pursue after Jesus with intensity and then turn. Remember that turn, that word turn literally means repent, repent, repent means I'm going this way. I'm going away from Jesus. I'm going towards my own thing and towards death. And he says, repent, change our minds and our direction. It's not just, yeah, yeah, yeah I know this is wrong. Okay. But then what are we going to do? Are we going to turn away from it or not? We're going to turn away from this and turn towards Jesus. He says, do that. He goes, turn from your indifference. He doesn't want them just to be lukewarm anymore. And then verse 20, this is a really famous passage. And I'm kind of curious how this is going to set with you because in verse 20, he says, look, I stand at the door and knock. Now, I used to always hear this as Jesus is at the heart of the unbeliever. And he's saying, hey, I'm here. Will you let me in? But what's the context? Who's he talking to? He's talking to the church. Jesus is standing outside of his own church, knocking and saying, will you let me in? How crazy is that? Is that the body of Christ refuses to let Christ into his own body? into his own family. It's kind of like if all of a sudden I would come home over Christmas and, and like the family is kind of like, yeah, door's locked, dad. You're not, you, you can't come in here. Wait, what? You're my family. Why don't you let me in? Right? Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm standing at the door, but the problem is, is I want into the hearts of the people who are in the church. The church has abandoned me and, and I want to enter into my own church. That's pretty gut-wrenching right there. That's pretty serious. But here's the cool thing is that that word, I stand, is a military term. Military term. You know what it means to take a stand in a military sense? It means you dig in. You make your presence permanent. You are ready for siege warfare. I stand. I will stand at your door and I will continue to knock. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not running away. You are. I'm right here. Don't ignore me. Jesus loves you and he's willing to make a stand for you. The same thing with our church. If we would ever walk away, he's kind of saying, hey, let me in because this is my church anyhow, right? Our church needs to be 110% about Jesus and nothing else. And so um, he says, if you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and I will share a meal together as friends. Wait, what? <laughs> You're going to come and we're going to go out to lunch together? Like, okay. Well, in that culture, a meal was a really, really important thing. There was three different Greek words for meal. The first meal of the day is breakfast, right? And, and that basically was you took a chunk of bread, you dipped it in the wine, you stuffed it in your mouth, and then you ran out the house, ran out of the house to go to work. Lunch, the word for lunch was literally mean, I'm going to have, I'm going to grab my knapsack wherever I'm at. I'm just going to go find a shady place and I'm going to open up my picnic and I'm going to eat it and I'm going to get back to work. But the evening meal is a big meal. 
that has meat and bread and all the other things that they would want. And they would have family and friends and they would end the day with family and friends, unrushed, unhurried, enjoying conversation, talking about that day, talking about the next day. How are you doing? This is what's going on in my life. It was a communal time of meaning and purpose and acceptance together. Any guesses as to which of the three words Jesus uses in this context of I'll share a meal with you? It's the evening meal. He says, when you come to me, I want to dine with you. I want to be a part of your life. I want to know you. You are accepted. You belong at this table. I love you. You matter. You make a difference. It is so important for us to understand that Jesus wants to to be in our home, to have this unrushed time with us, to have conversations and this family connection with us that's based on acceptance, togetherness, intimacy, belonging, and love. I was just talking with someone this week about connect groups. And as we continue to grow, like we really want to say, this is one expression of who we are. I love Sunday mornings. It's great. We have so much fun together, but this is just a worship gathering. The church is what happens throughout the week in our homes. Let's not lose sight of that. And connect groups is where we get to live that out. I remember if if you're unfamiliar with connect groups, we literally, it's about two hours long. We start off by having a potluck meal together. We just, we break bread together and we hang out around the table and we talk and we laugh, we cry and we share what's going on. And we just support each other in that. And then we transition over into saying, Hey, what'd you guys think about the last two weeks of messages? And we open up our Bibles and we just talk about whatever it is that God's laid on our hearts. And we want to continue to, to grow these, and we're going to need people to host them and lead them. And, and because we want people, we want them to stay small enough to where we can have that intimacy together. And it was interesting because years ago when we were starting them, I had somebody who's, who's no longer in Utah, but, but they, were, they were like, well, do we have to have a meal? Because it's messy, and it's a lot of work. And it's, I was like, yes, we have to have a meal. It's just a part of it. It's biblical, right? Like, it's a non-negotiable. Well, okay. And the next thing I knew, they were having their group do snacks. And I was like, snack is not a meal. That's the afternoon meal. Biblically is the evening meal. Come on. Let's bring casseroles and, and good stuff, you know? It's designed because we want to have a taste of what that is going to be like in heaven here on earth together. It's so important because at the table, we all belong. We all partake together. We all matter and have a seat at that table. And the same is especially true when it comes to our relationship with Jesus and his table. Verse 21, those who are victorious will will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. And what's interesting is that throne uh, means that we get to enjoy the loving authority of a powerful God. We don't have to be filled with bad fear of, oh, I can't go in there. Yeah, we're going to shake in our boots when we approach God's throne. But it's more of an awe and reverence. But it's also, he says, nah, get up here. You're with me. Like, this is, this is for you. What's awesome is that in chapter four, the word throne is mentioned 11 times in one chapter. And it's this description of what worship will be like in heaven. It's crazy. There's crazy creatures flying around. Everybody's shouting, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. It's just mind-blowing. But here he kind of wraps up by saying, you're going to be a part of this. You're invited to that. You belong there because you're with me. You get to experience true worship of God forever and ever. 
And then he closes out in verse 22 with his usual closing. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. Okay, so here's the big idea of this last church. If dependence on Jesus is the goal, then weakness is a virtue. If dependence on Jesus is the goal, then weakness is a virtue. Let's think about that. Laodicea's church lost its way because they were independent. They were independently wealthy. They were were healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. They didn't need Jesus. They didn't need the Spirit. They didn't need God's Word. They could handle it on their own. Heck, we rebuilt our city without any government assistance. We can, we can do this on our own. And in the, in the meantime, they started to rely on these piped-in artificial things that were crutches to Jesus of, oh, we can get our healing and our refreshment, and we can produce our own this, and we can do it. And it was all about me. And what they didn't realize was that they were actually sick. They were dying. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but when you don't realize that you're wrong, and then later on you realize that you're wrong, that's kind of embarrassing. And that's what Jesus says. You don't even realize that you're wrong. You think you're fine, but you're dying. You're stagnant. It's it's unhealthy. It's not okay. And that's the thing is that a lot of times um, uh, American Western spirituality and religion is all about self. It's all about me. It's what can I get? It's my health, my wealth, my prosperity. And it's all temporary. And in the meantime, we, we separate ourselves from the source of life, Jesus himself, the one who, who brings the real healing, who brings the real eternal prosperity, the real spiritual wealth. Not from a worldly perspective, but from an eternal perspective. And when we're, de- when we're independent, we separate ourselves from Jesus. When we're dependent on Jesus, thou- now all of a sudden our weaknesses become a virtue. I mean, the Apostle Paul says this himself, right? He says, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. God says, my, my power is made perfect in your weakness. So instead of boasting on our strengths, we're going to boast about our weaknesses and say, you want to see all the scars in my life? Of all the times that I've messed up, all the stupid things that I've done, I'm so excited that 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 Amy's going to be sharing her story because you have a crazy story. And it's just, it's the poster child of God's grace and his goodness. And I know so many of us have, have stories where, where we just show the grace, the power of the grace of Jesus. And I'm so glad we need to be sharing those stories more because sometimes if you're like me, you feel alone. Am I the only one that struggles with this? Am I the only one that's, that's afraid of this? Am I the only one that's, that's dealing with this temptation or this addiction or this fear or this doubt or whatever? Like, like we're not alone in that. The point isn't to sequester and seclude ourselves by ourselves. The point is to go directly to the source of that life and to pursue Jesus and his spirit and his word in ways that can literally revolutionize and save our lives. If dependence on Jesus is the goal, then weakness is a virtue. We don't want to rely on external temporary things for our identity and purpose and value and mission. Instead, we want to run to Jesus. In one of the commentaries this week, I saw the quote, Laodicea may have become a great organization, 
but they were not a great church. I don't ever want Greenhouse to become that. Let's just close the doors if we move in that direction. We want to constantly rely on the goodness of God, the direction of God, the mission, the vision, the grace of God as we exist as a family, but then more importantly, as we exist in our context and community. Okay, last three things we close out. Moving from belief to action, knowing to doing. Number one, this week, can we make Jesus the faithful, true, foundational beginning of our lives? Can we make him the source of everything that we are? Can we interpret the things, the situations that we experience in our lives in a way that pull us towards him instead of push us away from him? I know a lot of us have experienced things that is kind of like, man, God, why this? Why that? Maybe we need to start switching to, okay, God, how are you going to use this? How can this reveal you? How can I rely more on you? How can you use this in my life and my family's life and my church's life and my community's life? How can those things draw us to him? When he says he wants to share a meal, an unrushed, unhurried, intimate meal with us, he's serious. How can we, how can we experience that love in tangible ways? How can we let him work in and through us? Now, this invitation is for all of us. If you've been walking for the Lord for years and years and years, let's do a recalibration. Let's just do a self-examination and say, are there, are there things that, that we're piping in, that we're relying on external things other than Jesus, that we're building our, our, our lives, our identity, our value, our purpose on? Are, are those things uh, drawing us away from God, right? If, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's, it's good to kind of do a health check. Or maybe you're here this morning and you said, you know what, I've never put my faith in, in Jesus. And I've, I've, never, I've never said, Jesus, you were my, my savior. You saved me. I want you to save me. I need to be saved, right? And you're my Lord. You are sovereign over me. It's not about me. It's about you. I want my life to, to be for you. If you've never taken that, that, that leap of faith, if you've never said to Jesus those words, man, let's talk, catch me afterwards, catch Drew, catch Allie or, or Nicole or anybody, but don't miss that opportunity because Jesus is at the door knocking for all of us. He's saying, do you trust me with your life? The second is just examining those things, external things that, that might be lukewarm, that are, that are making us lukewarm, that, are, that are, uh, we're relying on those things instead of Jesus. Are there things about health, wealth, prosperity that, that we're valuing more than Jesus itself? How can we pursue the gospel? How can we pursue God's spirit, his word, um, and let that flow in and through our lives instead of some other diluted junk? And then last, as a church, let's think about, are we relying on other things? Are we putting our identity in other things? Are we, are, we, are we calling people more towards our church or are we calling people towards Jesus? Are we, you know, because there's all that excitement, right? Like, I love this church. I mean, I got the t-shirt to prove it, right? There you go. But, but like, are we, is it more about greenhouse or is it more about Jesus? And I've, I've been really open about that. I've, I've, I just want people to know Jesus. And, and if that can happen through this church, great. Or if it can happen through another church, great. But Jesus is the ultimate end goal. He is what it's all about. 
And I think as a church family, we need to continue to look at, at are there temptations? Are we, are we going down paths where we're trying to take the place of Jesus and, and draw people to us instead of to him? So those are the three encouragements or challenges this week. And, and, I, and I pray that, that over the last seven weeks, that there's been practical, meaningful, tangible things through these churches. If you haven't been here, if you if you haven't heard all of them, I encourage you to go back onto the website or the podcast or whatever and just listen to the messages and and just think about, okay, God, where do I fit in this? With how do I fit in to this? What do you have to say into my heart, into my soul? What are you wanting from me right now? The ultimate goal is to find our life, our identity, our freedom, our purpose in Him, and that's why we're here. Amen. I'm going to say it one more time. Can we say it? Because Jesus, we started off and he says, can we, can we, can we take this to heart? Amen. Awesome. Let's pray. God, we love you so much. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you don't leave us on our own, that you, that you uh, just give us a task list and say, well, good luck doing this. Um, God, you love us and we thank you for that love. God, you've given everything for us, and we thank you for that. God, help us to examine our hearts. God, help us to see where we've just gotten used to the lukewarm, yucky stuff. God, on one hand, make us passionate and and excited as we pursue you and call others towards you. But God, also, I love how you include the cool, cold, refreshing, life-giving water as well. God, sometimes we need that burning passion and other times we just need to be a a, a calming, reassuring, loving presence. Because God, that's what you are. You are hot, you are cold, and you are good. God, you give us what we need when we need it, how we need it. God, help us to live that out. Help us to share that. Help us to call others towards that. God, I thank you for each one that's here. Those that are online, those are going to be watching or listening later. God, I pray that your spirit would just speak to us and help us to see our lives through your lens. God, we love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.